You may have noticed, but I really like political history. Not for the politics itself, though. Really, I find hyper-partisanship at best silly and at worst dangerous. And let's face it, most of what government does is pretty boring. Don't get me wrong, government, in whatever form you choose, is there for the public good and to provide order and services that we city-dwelling civilizations need. But it's a lot of pencil-pushing and allocating money from X account to fund tomorrow's Project Y. Just turn on C-SPAN sometime to know that I'm right. And if you are saying to yourself that you've never turned on C-SPAN, then my point is already made. But the bit that I love and I mean really love, is that politics has the tendency to bring out all of humanity's flaws and foibles. Whole countries have been taken out with nothing more than some unrest and one really good, though ultimately untrue, rumor. And the craftiest of politicians will legalistically contort themselves in all manner of weird ways just to be able to say at the end of the day that they beat the other guy. Then there are the people who are equally flexible, but all in the name of enriching themselves. When they are finally caught, it's often mind-blowing just how far their schemes went. All in all, it's fascinating, engrossing, hilarious, sometimes sad, often maddening, but more than anything else, entertaining. And, lucky for us, Arizona has had more than its fair share of just these sorts of politicians— resorting to every trick in the book just to quote-unquote win. But for some, winning would forever remain an elusive thing. But boy howdy, did they try. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 133, Pinhead Hughes. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we did a quick summary of three of the governors of the Territory of Arizona, which was only quick not because I was stripping out a lot of information, but because they were replaced so darn quickly. We left off in the spring of 1893, when Republican Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy was ousted almost as quickly as he was appointed, due to Democratic President Grover Cleveland being elected in the fall of 1892 and sworn in March 1893. And Democrats in Arizona, especially Congressional Delegate Marcus Aurelius Smith, were quick to write the returning president that he should move as quickly as possible to select a new governor. In Smith's arguments, the territorial legislature was to wrap up its session by April 13th, and the new governor had to be in place at least several days before that in order for that governor to name a new slate of territorial officials. And this was to avoid the rather embarrassing situation of having two sets of officials, which had happened at the beginning of Zulik's governorship and then again at the beginning of Wolfley's tenure. And Smith argued that the appointments had to be made with consultation from the council, the territory's upper legislative body. Finally, Smith argued that without some patronage for Democrats, the party might be in danger of shriveling up in Arizona. I mean, we can't have the other side in control of the territory, right? That would just be the end of the world. 
I joke, of course, but we also have to remember that Grover Cleveland was one of only two Democrats to make it to the nation's highest office between 1861 and 1933. So Smith's rationale of striking while the iron was hot did have a lot of merit. Cleveland both did and did not heed Smith's advice. Oh, he's elected a governor, all right, but one that he knew would tick off Smith the most. I mentioned this two episodes ago, but Cleveland and Smith were not very simpatico. Part of it came down to policy. Cleveland and his wing of the Democratic Party were all for the gold standard, while Smith was very much in the free silver camp. But a large part of it came down to just sheer pettiness. As we mentioned two weeks ago, Smith and some of the other Democrats from Arizona had backed another horse at the Democratic National Convention in 1892, which was not something that Cleveland was going to overlook. So when the president announced his appointment on April 5, 1893, the nod went to a man named Louis C. Hughes of Tucson. Okay, Louis C. Hughes. Arizona's 11th territorial governor had been born in Philadelphia in 1842, being the ninth child of a pair of Welsh immigrants. His parents actually died a few short years later, so Hughes grew up mostly in an orphanage before becoming an indentured farmhand. An ardent abolitionist, Hughes tried three separate times to enlist in the Civil War, but the first two times he was rejected due to his ill health and small frame. When he finally got in, he had a two-year stint in the war before health reasons caused him to leave, and Hughes next started working in a machine shop in Pittsburgh, something that paid the bills while he considered what should be his chosen vocation. And during this time, he was also very active in his union and was an advocate for the eight-hour workday and for employment opportunities for veterans and recently emancipated African Americans. However, his health began to fail, and it was decided that he should move to somewhere with a more mild climate. And so in 1871, he and his wife decided to move to Tucson. Once in the Arizona Territory, he finished studying law and began to embroil himself in local politics. He would serve as a probate judge, district attorney, and was even named Territorial Attorney General by then-Governor Anson P. K. Safford. Other achievements include being named to the Board of Managers of the 1891 Chicago's World Fair and sent as a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 1884, 1888, and 1892. And it should be pointed out that at that last convention, Hughes split with Smith and others of his party to vote in favor of Cleveland. But his real fame in Arizona came about because for 30 years, starting in 1877, Hughes was the editor and publisher of the Arizona Daily Star newspaper. In his newspaper, he advocated for such positions as removing the Apache to Florida, which we know did come true, setting up a land claims court, women's suffrage, a decrease in liquor and gambling licenses, and the construction of permanent settlements in the territory. Some of these policies, such as the land grants and the opposition to liquor and gambling, put him at odds with Smith and his wing of the Democratic Party, which again probably made him all the more attractive to Cleveland. But before I give you the impression that Hughes' appointment was all out of spite, he did come with a whole bevy of endorsements from powerful political figures and institutions in Arizona. 
he wasn't the only one vying for the position, and one of his rivals was none other than Thomas E. Farish, the one-time private secretary to Governor Zulick, who is also the early state historian that I use quite frequently until we came to the end of his work. Hughes's nomination was hotly contested by Smith and the Arizona Central Democratic Committee, for many of the reasons I've already mentioned. And because 19th century politics is nothing if not shady, it's entirely possible that the thing that really cinched the appointment for Hughes was a photograph. It seems that someone snapped a photo of a notorious gambler in the Congress Hall saloon dealing a hand of pharaoh to an eclectic group that included a Chinese man, a black man, and two white men. And this photo was sent to Cleveland by a friend of Hughes with the erroneous title of, quote, Here is Mr. Hughes' opponent's principal supporter at his daily work, end quote. There is some reason to believe that this story is apocryphal, but in the end, Cleveland chose Hughes. And really, his appointment represented a larger split inside the Democratic Party, with the more liberal wing moving away from Smith and his wing. So that sound you are now hearing is the Democratic Party in Arizona starting to tear itself apart. And this is a conflict that will come to mostly define the Hughes administration. In fact, for his entire three years in office, the Democrats would try to get Hughes ousted, lobbying all sorts of accusations at him and writing angry letter after angry letter to Cleveland to just go ahead and sack the guy they were all calling Pinhead Hughes. But Hughes did make it into office and held it for three long years, so we should see what he did with the time that was given him. First and foremost, and like virtually everyone at the time, he was a strong proponent of statehood, citing Arizona's continual population growth and how the territory had come out of the Panic of 1893 relatively unscathed. However, he was a gold standard man and believed that with a recent price drop in silver, gold production would quickly rid his fellow Arizonans of their silver stance. He also wasn't the biggest fan of the state constitution that had been drafted in 1891, mainly because it had been drafted so quickly and by so few people. You might recall that after they had drafted it, the committee of only 22 men basically told the voters to hold their collective noses and say yes, just because it meant getting statehood. So Hughes instead favored a slower but more thoughtful process for Arizona to gain its proper status. And I think history might have vindicated him on this one because, as we've already seen, statehood would remain elusive for years to come. And though he was selected as governor in 1893, he actually had to wait until the 18th legislature met in 1895 before being able to address the body. One of Hughes's first priorities was actually the same as the Republican governor he had replaced, namely taxation. The governor called for tax reform, calling for the repeal of all laws seeking this or that property to be exempted, and that property should be assessed at its real value. Now, this wouldn't happen during his tenure, but at least he made a stab at ending all the tax evasion that was going on out there. Still wishing to balance the books better, Hughes also proposed, and the legislature approved, the idea of bringing all the individual territorial boards and committees across Arizona under one board of directors of public institutions, the only exception being schools and universities. 
The governor was also proud that he was able to slash the cost of prison maintenance by 25% through a parole law that allowed a certain number of convicts to be let out of prison on the condition that they find suitable employment. And according to historian Jay Wagner, at least, only one person who was released under this law is said to have skipped out on his parole. Then, showing more of his moralistic tendencies, Hughes would also espouse such ideas as prohibiting gambling, making the selling of lottery tickets a crime, having a Sunday rest law, giving the vote to women, and taking care of the deaf, mute, and the blind. Of those, only the last one really took off, with the legislature allocating money to help people with disabilities. Another major moralistic cause for him, and one that he would advocate for during his entire tenure, not just during the legislative session, was prohibition. These are the decades leading up to the 1920s and the infamous nationwide prohibition, but it all really started with promoters of temperance like Hughes. He would attack the liquor trade, saying that it was both morally and financially corrupt. In an 1895 report, he would say that despite the territory having something along the lines of 635 saloons, seven wholesale liquor houses, and 18 malt liquor warehouses, they somehow combined paid less than $17,000 in taxes. He would go on to claim that a full 75% of the inmates at Yuma and half of those in Phoenix's insane asylum were there because of alcohol abuse. I'm not a drinking man myself, but I think I would still like to check his sources for those statistics. This stance definitely won Hughes some friends back east, but it was just another wedge between himself and Smith, former Governor Conrad Zulick, and others in their quote-unquote wet wing of the party. I also simply have to mention that the legislature did pass a new election law that made it a crime for candidates to directly or indirectly, invite people to have a beer or other type of drink with them. To fully understand this law, you must know that in the 19th century, buying people a beer as a way to get them to vote for you was extremely common. There were always accusations of vote buying over candidates finding the nearest bar and paying for a round in exchange for their new friends showing up at the polls on election day. I like the way early state historian James H. McClintock puts this law, saying, quote, thus striking directly at an electioneering practice that had been both time-honored and expensive, end quote. During this same session, the legislature also took up the issue of county creation, opting not to carve out a new one from parts of Cochise and Graham counties that would have had Wilcox as its seat, and also choosing not to create one called Papago that would have had Nogales as its county seat. Of course, Papago County would come back in 1899, but by then it was being called Santa Cruz County. This is also the session that gave us Navajo County, splitting off the western end of Apache County and putting the county seat at Holbrook. And though this act in and of itself didn't cause any kind of stir, it was responsible for another bit of political chicanery that I just love. What happened is another bill had been put forward to move the territorial prison, this time taking it from Yuma and giving it to Prescott. However, the Speaker of the House of Representatives was one J.H. Carpenter, representing Yuma, and you can bet that he wasn't going to let that happen on his watch. 
So on the last day of the session, the discussion about the creation of Navajo County was the only thing stopping the discussion about moving the prison. So the speaker would constantly say that the representative from Apache County, which didn't want Navajo County to break away, had the floor. This had the effect of keeping the bill on the House floor for hours until the eventual stroke of midnight. But it gets even better. You see, a tradition had cropped up that if the House was still working on business at the stroke of midnight on its last day, that the clock would either be reset by one hour or stopped altogether to allow the legislature to keep working. Apparently, a janitor showed up with a stepladder to do just that, but was then ordered out of the chambers by Carpenter, and the speaker then brought down his gavel and declared the session adjourned sine die, or without plans to reconvene. Carpenter was able to stave off the prison going somewhere all right, but the story goes even further, because that's not the only bill that his stall tactics had managed to keep from getting passed. It turns out that an actual appropriations bill, you know, the thing that literally funds the government, also was in the queue and not passed when Carpenter declared the session over. However, everyone kind of just kept going along without thinking about this too much. So the territory continued to pay for things, even though technically everything between then and the approval of an appropriations bill two years later was probably illegal. I have to say, most of the time, politics is boring. But every once in a while, it really showcases the absurd lengths humans will go to for what they want. All in all, Hughes spent a miserable time in his governorship, with a lot of his own party mad at him, and constantly charging him with all sorts of malfeasance. Two quote-unquote investigators from the Interior Department actually came to the territory in 1895 just to build a case against him and conveniently hightailed it out of town before Hughes could make a rebuttal or provide any evidence on his behalf. Now, there is some evidence that he had worked against the Democratic nominee for territorial delegate in 1894, and you'll remember that's when Murphy won the office, and that he might have used some extra-legal influence to get bills passed that he favored. But really, none of that is going to sink him. Apparently, Hughes was not in favor of a Cleveland administration policy of how school lands granted to Arizona were being dealt with. There is some reason to expect there was more going on here, as several senators and other officials received telegraphs from Hughes urging them to overturn a presidential veto on the matter, but then the governor claimed to have not sent anything and that those signatures must have been forged. Now, remember that he had been appointed because he had been a Cleveland Democrat, unlike the rest of his colleagues, so to go against the policy now was not going to go favorably for him. Add in the constant allegations flowing into Washington, and the president finally decided it was time to cut ties. News of his sacking arrived on March 30th, 1896. McClintock claims that Hughes tried to hold on to his office, and he would officially protest his dismissal and defend his honor to Cleveland, but really, he was done for. Adding injury to insult, during his last week in office, he was even accosted on the street and punched in the face by a man who was angry about some articles that had run in Hughes's paper. Finally, adding insult to injury, Phoenix positively threw a party when Hughes's replacement arrived on scene. The now ex-governor would go back to Tucson and his newspaper, which he would continue to oversee for another decade, finally retiring in 1907. 
He died in 1915 and is buried in Tucson's Evergreen Cemetery, which is also the final resting place of Tom Jeffords and Larsena Pennington Page, as well as other notable Tucson residents. Now, the natural questions that are probably coming to your mind right now are, okay, how long is the next guy going to last, and who exactly are they going to get to fill this seat now that it's starting to feel a lot like the defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts? Well, the answers are not too long, and a man named Benjamin Joseph Franklin. Franklin, whom Wagner tells us is indeed a descendant of that Benjamin Franklin, had been born in Kentucky in 1839. Like oh so many politicians, he went into law, becoming a practicing attorney in Kansas during the antebellum period. From here, it was a natural jump into politics, as he was elected to the Territorial Senate during the stretch of time that we now know as Bleeding Kansas. When the Civil War broke out, he, like so many people we've talked about so far, went into the army. The only difference is, yeah, he joined the Confederate Army, where he would eventually rise to the rank of captain. After the war, he settled in Missouri, where he spent a large number of years again building up a legal practice, after having to run a farm at first because the state wasn't that eager for a former Confederate officer to be practicing law. But once he was able to be a lawyer again, he had a fairly successful career, which even culminated in a two-term stint as one of Missouri's congressmen. So apparently they did eventually get over his whole Confederate service. He would move to Phoenix in 1891, but only after a five-year stint as a U.S. consul in China. I have to say, already this guy has a way more impressive resume than most of those who were appointed to the office before him. Once in the territory, he would run for prosecuting attorney in 1894, but lost like so many Democrats in that election. Marcus Aurelius Smith, who championed Franklin for governor, argued that the president couldn't hold this loss against him, quipping that, quote, a wooden Indian-marked Republican would in that election have beaten Andrew Jackson. End quote. Smith and many other leading Democrats were backing Franklin, after properly lamenting the state of the party with Hughes at the helm, of course, which seemed to have been enough for Cleveland. Oh, that and did you see this coming? Franklin was in favor of the gold standard. So the president named Franklin to the office the same day that Hughes was shown the back door, with the former taking over the territory officially on April 18th. He would only oversee one session of the legislature that started meeting in January 1897. Historian Jay Wagner says his opening address could be seen as another plea for statehood. Like everyone else, Franklin was absolutely convinced that statehood lay just around the corner. So he spoke about how prosperous the territory was, how many people have moved there, and how the economy was faring. The legislature was also caught up with the same rapturous feelings of statehood, so much so that they approved a measure to finance the building of a proper state capital. Tom Lavelle of Denton, Texas, won the contract to build the structure at Washington and 17th Avenue, which was first occupied starting in 1901 and is still in use today. I suppose it wouldn't be one of my patented political episodes if I didn't talk about some of the ludicrous shenanigans that went on. The first is just kind of silly, as it appears that the legislature and previous administration had racked up quite a number of bills for newspapers that they had failed to pay. 
several prominent newspapermen, including former Governor Lewis Wolfley, showed up seeking redress for this issue. But they were kind of laughed at and even told that newspapers were a nuisance, not a benefit to the territory. The House even went so far as to pass a joke bill declaring that anyone found editing and publishing a newspaper in the territory would be found guilty of a felony, punishable by 10 to 20 years in the territorial penitentiary. Finally, though, both houses grudgingly dug deep into their pockets and voted to pay what they owed. This legislature also voted a grant of $3,000 to the Society of Arizona Pioneers for the preservation of Arizona's historical records. This normally wouldn't be worth mentioning, except the $3,000 in question would soon be embezzled by none other than Fred G. Hughes, no relation to the ex-governor, who was actually president of the Territorial Council and an officer with the society. Wagner tells us that he would be sent to prison in Yuma for this, but would later be pardoned, at least by man. God seems to have had a different opinion because Hughes was killed shortly thereafter by a bolt of lightning. During this session, the legislature also voted into effect a tax exemption for the railroads and to allow the Santa Fe to absorb the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad. However, while Franklin signed this bill with no problem, he refused to sign, and even vetoed, Bills allowing some private enterprises, such as beet factories or reservoir and canal projects, similar tax exemptions. This was probably because railroads were a public good and would benefit the development of the territory, while the others were just a way for people to make some money. It's a valid point, but the net result is that it made a lot of politicians mad at the governor. There was already some strain there because Franklin was a gold standard head of a free silver territory, but the tax exemptions became a breaking point. The House became so angered at Franklin's vetoes that they actually passed a resolution that declared, quote, the best interests of the territory demand an immediate change in the office of governor, end quote. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed in the council, which passed a substitute resolution stating its full confidence in Franklin. Someone who did not have a cooler head, however, was the governor himself, who was both angry and feeling retaliatory. He soon charged certain members of the legislature with bribery over a certain bill that would have raised government salaries. He claimed, for example, that he had been offered $500 by a representative from Pima County to sign that bill. With tempers flaring, we here have to return to that most fickle of mistresses, national partisan politics. Because it's now 1897, and the year prior had been an election year. Specifically, this was the election that saw William McKinley beat William Jennings Bryan for president, which meant a Republican was coming into the nation's top office again. Apparently, Franklin had made a promise at some point that if McKinley won, he would generously step down from office by having his resignation in the president's hand by Inauguration Day. However, he didn't carry through with this promise, shocker, and even sent people to Washington, D.C. in order to lobby against the guy McKinley was thinking about appointing. The Arizona Weekly Journal Miner said that this type of meddling in the appointment of his replacement was unprecedented in American history and, quote, has demonstrated right along that he is a very small-caliber politician, and smooth bore at that, end quote. 
Franklin would eventually receive his Dear John letter from the president on July 22, 1897, instructing him that his replacement had been selected and that all records were to be turned over to the territorial secretary. Now officially out, Franklin went back to being a regular guy on the streets of Phoenix. Though, as it turned out, even if he had stayed in office, he wouldn't have been governor for long. On May 18, 1898, or just shy of 10 months from leaving the governor's office, Franklin decided to take a little nap shortly after noon. At 4 o'clock when his family went to rouse him, they found that he had suddenly passed away in his sleep. I can't seem to find an exact cause for his passing, but he was only 59 years old. He's now buried in the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park in Phoenix. It's a kind of funny but inglorious end for the governor, which you can argue was the common lot of really everyone we talked about in the last couple of episodes. However, seeing as we have now reached nearly the end of the 1890s, I'm going to stop both the political talk and this episode here for now. But join me next week as we take a few minutes to contemplate the majesty of Mother Nature and the fact that she really could bring the hammer down on Arizona whenever she wished. And she would do just that at the beginning of the 1890s, when the Salt River would experience the worst flooding in recorded history. A terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, but highly ironic, event for the dry desert city of Phoenix. But before I let you go, I wanted to offer a friendly reminder that I'm going to be at the Arizona History Convention in Tempe next weekend on Saturday, April 15th. If you're going to, please make sure to say hello. Until next time, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>